Russia warns Britain against arming the Syrian rebels. The Defence Secretary says an independent Scotland would struggle to defend itself. How medical advances made by the military in Afghanistan are saving lives back in the UK. We've been carrying blood in the helicopters here for a number of years and last year London Air Ambulance started carrying blood on their helicopters. And the new Pope comes Argentina, but do his political views matter? It's two years since the uprising began in Syria. In March 2011, protests erupted in the southern city of Dera after the arrest and torture of some teenagers who painted revolutionary slogans on a school wall. The unrest triggered nationwide protests demanding President Bashar al-Assad's resignation and by July 2011, hundreds of thousands were taken to the streets in towns and cities across the country. Well, I'm joined by a former British ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. So, Andrew Green, did you think two years ago when it all started that it would end up like this, a fully blown conflict? Well, not from the very moment it started two years ago, no, but as soon as we encouraged other Arab states to supply weapons, uh, then this was bound to be the result. Um, in calling for Assad to go, we completely overestimated his significance, in my view, and we underestimated the absolute determination of the Alawites not to lose the power on which their lives depend. Um, and since then, I'm afraid Syria has gone from bad to worse. We've got a conflict that's increasingly sectarian, Islamic extremists getting more and more influential among the rebels, no sign that either side can defeat the other, and a refugee situation that's deteriorating very sharply. And what do you think of Britain's recent announcement that it will send equipment to the rebels, body armour, armoured vehicles and search and rescue equipment? Well, frankly, I think it's slightly absurd. Uh, it will certainly not affect the outcome, nor will it buy any particular credit from the rebel movement in, uh, that might take power in the future, uh, because the people who will be dominant in any successor regime, if there is one, will be the Islamic extremists who are no friends of ours and are deeply unimpressed by um, a, a couple of armoured cars. And given that's your opinion, do you also think that, it, the, as the French Foreign Minister's suggestion, Laurent Fabius today, that it would consider arming the Syrian opposition, even if it meant breaking the EU ban, that that would be the wrong thing to do? Yes, I think it would be absolutely wrong, um, obviously from a legal point of view. But from a practical point of view, uh, it can only make um, a bad situation even worse. I think this whole business, as I've implied earlier, of regime change is, um, is the wrong approach. We don't have the political muscle to achieve that uh, because of the vetoes in the Security Council, and we certainly don't have the military power to achieve it. Uh, nor, I would argue further, that um, is it in our interest to do so, because the result will be anarchy. Uh, followed by, uh, in my view, a um, Muslim extremist regime. So but, what do you mm -hmm. think Britain should be doing? Well, I think we have to try to reduce the level of fighting and to do that by restricting arms supplies to both sides. That requires a dialogue with the Russians and the Iranians who are arming the regime and uh, a revision of our uh, relationship or, or rather our advice to those Arab countries who are supplying the, um, the opposition. Um, we have to aim, I think, for some kind of a standoff um, at a lower level of violence. Beyond that, it's really very hard to see. 
Christopher Lee. Um, William Hague has been talking to his Russian counterpart this week, the foreign, uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and there's obviously a lot of uh, disagreement on how to deal with Syria. What can they agree on? Um, they can't agree on anything. <laughs> Quite. Uh, that's, a, that's the simplicity. And one of the reasons they can't agree is that neither the Russians nor the British nor almost anybody else has got an idea what to do about it. Right. They haven't got the plan and saying, our plan is better than yours. Also, the drivers on the British position of, let's say, at this point, armoured uh, uh, vehicles and maybe some body, ar body armour, there are outside influences. And those outside influences are the concerns of the British to what some of the Gulf uh, states think and what the Saudis think and what the Qataris think becomes far more important in their understanding. Last year there was a conference in Marrakesh and basically the conference agreed that people should, including the United Kingdom, France, Germany, etc., uh, should recognise the rebels just the same way that if you remember in the uh, Libyan conflict everybody started saying, right, we recognise the opposition. The truth is, if there is a solution to this, and don't forget, Assad is still there. Mm. It's not as if somebody just said, oh, well, he's on his way out next week. If there is a solution to this, it is going to be a solution within Syria and maybe with regional, not international, influence. And that becomes extraordinarily important when you have to say, how do we resolve it? The answer is the United Kingdom cannot resolve it. Sanjay Green, yep. what are the dangers of this for the region? Well, first of all, I entirely support what Christopher just said. I think he's absolutely right. The dangers are, are very, very severe. Um, one is that uh, Syria itself will fall into uh, absolute chaos, uh, where the economy must be going down the tubes. Uh, there's tremendous damage in the cities. Uh, there'll be no uh, flow of, of food even around, uh, around the country where it's needed. Uh, the refugees will spread into... Uh, Turkey and uh, Lebanon and, and Jordan and are already adding to the pressures in those countries. Beyond that, um, there are serious risks uh, of uh, Hezbollah. This is a, a, a Shiite um, uh, resistance movement in, in, in Lebanon getting involved. They're already helping uh, the government in Syria. Um, this could spread. The instability could spread. But uh, even within Syria, it's extraordinarily hard to see a, an organized government that can even... Uh, can even sustain the economic lives of its population. This is really serious stuff. Christopher, um, why are Britain and Russia holding talks if they don't know what to do? I think this is quite separate. Um, there's something in diplomacy, international diplomacy, called restart. And this is when you've had a bad time with perhaps, like, the United Kingdom and Russia, which has had a bad, bad relations. And so you, start, you want to restart the, the relationship. And that's what's actually happening at the moment. You think that quite separately. But, you see, when you get to this confrontation, the Russians say, no, you mustn't interfere. Uh, you mustn't arm them uh, in, over Syria. That becomes the high peg uh, characteristic of those talks. And what the Russians believe, and they've got it right to some extent, if the United Kingdom, or by the uh, United Kingdom's attitude of publicly saying we will support the rebels. Effectively, the United Kingdom is saying we will support maybe 50 or 60 dissident 
and different rebel groupings, which when they get to Damascus, eventually should they, this could end up being even a more unholy bloodbath than ever, anybody ever imagined. Uh, Sandra, h- how much understanding do you think there is at the Foreign Office of this issue? Well, you put me on the spot there. I mean, frankly, I think the Russians have got this right from the start. Uh, I think our policy went off in the wrong direction uh, as far as Syria is concerned. Um, at, at the moment that Chris has just mentioned, when we uh, assumed that there was some parallel between the events in Libya uh, and uh, the events to come in Syria, and we fell for the suggestion uh, by the Syrian opposition that, that, that they should set up uh, this umbrella uh, organization to resist uh, Assad and so on. Once we were into that, um, then uh, the situation got worse and worse. And remember, Syria is a, a Russian client state. Uh, it's the last uh, country in the Middle East where the Russians have a significant foothold, uh, both in terms of arms supply and a, a naval base at Tartus. So they are not about to give up on it. It's also very important for Iran for reasons of their own. I mean, we have put our fingers into the mangle here, uh, and I think, frankly, it was ill-judged. All right. Sir Andrew Green, former British ambassador to Syria, thank you for your time today. There's been a marked increase in rhetoric from North Korea recently. The country says it wants to scrap the armistice that ended the Korean War. Pyongyang has also cut off a hotline to Seoul and vowed to end non-aggression pacts with the South. Well, earlier I spoke to Andrea Berger, who's an expert on nuclear issues at the Royal United Services Institute. I asked her what's prompted the latest outbursts. Well, there are two developments that North Korea seems to be issuing threats in response to. The first is the latest UN Security Council sanctions resolution that beefed up some of the financial sanctions and added a set of new goods to the existing sanctions list. And in response to that, North Korea has threatened uh, third um, provocations um, following on from a nuclear test. And those are threats they've made for a period of weeks now. The second development that North Korea is responding to are the military exercises um, between the U.S. and South Korea that are ongoing on the Korean Peninsula. And in response to that, we've seen some extremely belligerent rhetoric from the North threatening a preemptive nuclear attack and to cancel the armistice agreement, something that's been threatened quite often in the past by the North. Technically, uh, North and South Korea are are still at war in spite of this uh, truce, which uh, North Korea now says it's lifted. Um, How potent in general are these threats? Well, it's very difficult to say exactly how propaganda-laced the current threats are. We can say with some confidence that a degree of this is propaganda, and that's shown just by the fact that the threat to cancel the armistice agreement has been made so many times before. But what we're running into now is that even if there's a large degree of propaganda to this, there's also a very high risk of miscalculation that comes with um, just the gap in perception between North Korea, between South Korea and between the United States. UN sanctions, as you say, were agreed last week. What can they achieve in this situation? Well, there are two real problems uh, associated with the North Korean nuclear issue. And the first, naturally, is that North Korea has developed an indigenous nuclear capability. And that looks like it might be working towards having the ability to threaten the continental United States 
with a nuclear warhead atop an intercontinental ballistic missile. And sanctions might be less useful in addressing the North Korean desire to have a nuclear weapon. What they are quite effective in addressing is a, a second problem in North Korea, which is that North Korea seems perfectly willing to proliferate its missile technology and potentially its nuclear technology to high bidders. And sanctions can, if effectively implemented, cut supply from demand. How concerned are you that North Korea would take military action? And if so, who do you think they would target? Would it be the US? Would it be South Korea? Would it be Japan? Well, I think there's little chance of North Korea attempting to strike the United States, especially the continental United States, unless it feels existentially threatened. And that's somewhere we're unlikely to get to in the foreseeable future. However, that being said, the intense level of rhetoric right now does create a huge risk of misperception, of miscalculation, that can perhaps lead to either North Korea feeling it can get away with a small-scale conventional provocation, for instance, against a South Korean island, which is something that it's been threatening in the past few days as well. So there is a chance of that, and we might see something more more regionally focused and conventional uh, in level from the North Koreans. Andrea, you're speaking to me from Beijing, where you've been talking to the Chinese about their nuclear policy. How is it going down? How is the rhetoric going down there? And is there anything China is thinking of doing? Well, certainly China feels pressure, and you get the sense that there really is an ongoing debate in China about what to do. Here in Beijing, we've heard analysis that's been published as well, uh, suggesting everything from a complete abandonment of North Korea to a rethinking of the current aid, especially in uh, terms of oil uh, contributions to North Korea, to extension of a nuclear umbrella to North Korea in hopes of getting the North to give up its nuclear program. We've heard all that. So there really is a debate within China And in the coming months, once the new leadership here has settled down a bit, we may see some of that debate filtering up to the top. That was Andrea Berger, an expert on nuclear issues at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Christopher, what does North Korea really want here? Uh, Well, it wants respect, that's the first thing. It wants its own status. Um, It actually does want to develop a nuclear warhead because it's watched what Pakistan happened to Pakistan, what India did when they got uh, nuclear warheads. Immediately people started talking of them as equals. Also, uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader there, he refuses, after all the leaderships that they've had in North Korea, to be seen as a client state of China. He ain't going to be pushed around by China. So this is the big thing for respect. But most of all, he wants to keep people on edge. Now, I mean, Andrea was saying, well, you know, they may not be able to hit with any system they have in the United States. That's, that's not quite true. If you hit... South Korea, just over the border, the Americans have got, what, 28,000 troops there. You've just hit America. If you hit uh, Japan, the Americans have got 37,000 troops. You've just hit America. And that's the size And of by it. keeping people on edge, is it about trying to get sanctions lifted? Yeah. I mean, they, they are starving. And, of course, the, uh, the way of getting stuff through is through China. But China's getting very, very grumpy about this uh, because, as we've talked before, China is now about to be surrounded entirely 
by nuclear weapon states. So China isn't very happy at all, and China at last is realising it can no longer control and influence North Korea. And that's the biggest thing we've got. Still to come, how the work of a battlefield hospital is saving lives back in the UK and the new Pope's views on Falklands sovereignty. The Defence Secretary has said soldiers, sailors and airmen serving with the British Armed Forces may be unwilling to sign up for a new independent Scottish Defence Force. Philip Hammonds made the comments during a speech in Edinburgh. He said that if Scotland does vote for independence in next year's referendum, it would mean a significant gamble on defence. Christopher, uh, Philip Hammond has called the SNP plans insultingly vague. Is that the case? He's winding them up, isn't he? I mean, basically, this is a huge wind-up for the... the referendum in Scotland uh, next year and you're going to have the British government all sorts of things in industry in social needs etc and defence is another one saying oh well it wouldn't work well the truth is um, if you go and look at the Scottish regiments Scots don't want to join anyway and so will you get other people There is people a very, very high Fijian population, isn't there? Well, yeah, there is a high... And you look at some of the Scottish regiments at the moment. I mean, if you if you look where, let's say, the, the, the battalion or the, or the company of, I don't know, the Argyles, where were they? They were down in Kent. Where are the Black Watch? Well, they're down in Hampshire, they're Tidworth or, or, or whatever. So you haven't got that anyway. I think this is, this is, this is quite a natural thing and, uh, to, to understand, but uh, it's a, a big difference... If you've actually got an independent Scotland, then you might actually have that, I don't know, that regional identity, which is important that people will join. But they don't have to join as many as before. You know, originally people like Hammond were saying, oh, 7,000 uh, 7, troops based in, in, in Scotland. Now it's down to about 4,000. Uh, and so, oh, well, let's get the TA to do it all. And you can only have Scots join the TA anyway. You, you say that this is all winding, winding the SNP up. Well, uh, most of it anyway. What about what about the timing of the comments though? Uh, is well, it just the start of what we're going to see more of? As I think as I think it started. Yeah, I think it, yeah. You know, we've got we've got twelve months or so before the the referendum. At the moment, if you held a, the, the latest figures show, if you held uh, a referendum today, only. 23% of Scotland would say, yep, we want to be independent. Well, that's not going to do the SNP any harm uh, if, it's, if it hears Hammond saying, oh, well, you know, it, things won't be so good if people vote for, the, uh, for independence because that allows them to retaliate. And so it is, it is not going to shift public opinion because the real public opinion comes when they actually have to say the Scottish people have to say yes we want to be independent and at the moment there's no sign that it will happen. And, and how, how do you think the Scottish people will actually um, read into what the Defence Secretary has said today? I don't think, well 23% might be might be interested, I don't think Scottish people are particularly interested at all what the uh, Defence Secretary says. I can't imagine it's going to make the headlines in anything else but the Scotsman. This is BFBS SIGREP The hospital at Camp Bastion in Afghanistan is now the world's leading trauma centre. The 40-bed facility is home to some of the most cutting-edge medical technology. BFBS reporter Fiona Weir has been to see it and sent this report. 
Multinational soldiers and local civilians who have suffered varying degrees of trauma arrive by ambulance and helicopter at the Roll 3 Hospital in Camp Bastion 24 hours a day. The facility is currently being staffed by reservists from Belfast Base 204 Field Hospital under the command of Colonel Alan Black and is capable of dealing with everything from minor injuries to major trauma. 98.7% of those who arrive at the facility with a pulse will leave with a pulse. We have kit and equipment which is cutting edge, uh, is not in common use elsewhere, certainly not in common use in the National Health Service. But in addition to that, we have fantastic staff who have the skills uh, and expertise to manage uh, trauma cases uh, in a way that simply people uh, elsewhere wouldn't have had the experience to manage the cases. Lieutenant Rachel McCauley is one of a team of trauma specialists who assess patients' injuries and decide on how to proceed. We check over the patient, make sure there's no catastrophic bleeding, check all their vital signs, check the front and the back of the patient, make sure they're not bleeding anywhere or any abdominal pain, any pain anywhere. This frontline experience is a long way from her day job back in Belfast, but Medical Director Colonel Paul Parker says the hospital relies on expert reservists like Rachel to keep it going. And um, We all basically work together. Somebody remarked the other day it's, you can't tell the reservists from the regular staff uh, and they're a vital part of the, um, uh, the team we have here. And clearly we're hoping that, well we know that they will take the skills that they've picked up here um, in Afghanistan back to the province for better care of people in Northern Ireland. There is a long history of war driving medical advances and the conflicts in Iraq and now in Afghanistan have allowed emergency medicine to evolve much faster than it would have previously. One of the key lessons learned over the last 10 years is the importance of controlling blood loss. The combination of blood products rather than saline being carried in the air ambulances and the cutting edge equipment in the hospital like the Belmont Rapid Infuser, is saving lives. What that means is that when a casualty comes to the door whose heart may have stopped because of traumatic cardiac arrest, that's where the heart stops because there isn't enough blood to go around the body. This can infuse warm blood as fast as the heart will actually pump it. So we just stop doing CPR, we connect a very large line in the neck to this and we can infuse it between 500 and 750 mils a minute so we can actually over three or four minutes almost replace someone's complete circulating blood volume. And Colonel Parker says the lessons being learned on the ground in Afghanistan are revolutionising emergency medicine in the UK. We've been carrying blood in the helicopters here for a number of years and last year London Air Ambulance started carrying blood on their helicopters. Also we found that um, people who'd had um, lower or upper limb injuries had significant pelvic fractures so we We've, you know, in the field, people get pelvic banders applied. And again, ambulance services in London and Nottingham have started carrying these pelvic banders so that when people are hit by a car, that they do suspect a pelvic fracture and they apply a pelvic bander. So those are direct lessons we have from the, uh, the battlefield. It's this combination of expert reservists from the NHS, regular military personnel and cutting-edge equipment that makes the hospital in Camp Bastion the centre of excellence that it's become. Fiona Weir for SITREP in Afghanistan. Well, Surgeon Commodore Alastair Walker is the medical director at Joint Medical Command. He leads the hospital doctors across the armed services and also leads medical research for the Surgeon General. Alastair Walker, thanks for your time today. Uh, that survival rate, Fiona mentioned, 98.7% for those arriving at Camp Bastion with a pulse. It's staggering. How much better have the odds got during the British mission in Afghanistan over the last decade or so? 
Kate, it's a remarkable figure and a figure we're very proud of. But let's try and put it in context because it's difficult to judge. If everybody turned up with a cut finger, we would expect 100% survival. But these are complex casualties. Probably better to judge is the survivors that shouldn't have survived. And we look at all our cases, and statistically, there are over 50 to 70 people that all the statistics say they should have died and have survived. I think that is is the best figure that we can give you. And we heard some specific examples there of how life expectancy has been improved. Uh, blood on helicopters, for example, and this uh, rapid infuser, which gives a patient instant huge quantities of blood. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? Well, I lead quite a large research department, and um, we're looking at novel blood substitutes. The NHS Blood and Transfusion Service, our own logistics services, takes blood from Britain thousands of miles, but it's a huge logistic burden. So if we can find new alternative substitutes for blood that take oxygen to the tissues, then that's great. We're also looking at drugs to improve the cellular level uh, damage and and prevent that damage um, because the the cells are the building block of of our body and if we can stop the damage at the cellular level, that would be absolutely brilliant. And finally, another key area is understanding blast and what it does to our body. And the more we learn, the less we really are aware that we know of that. And it's it's very complicated, but uh, we're working very hard with that. Christopher, the the irony of war is that throughout history it's driven medical breakthroughs, hasn't it? It has, and don't forget, one of the medical breakthroughs, which in fact is not quite medical, is is transport. It's the ability to casivac somebody from a remote fighting area, say back to Birmingham, or the Americans always sort of brought them into continental Europe. And that becomes very important because the majority of casualties, in fact, are not in places like Afghanistan, they're in places like Africa, and that's why they die. But if you take some one single thing, uh, let's say penicillin. If you'd have had penicillin in World War I, we wouldn't have the war poets all gloomy because majority of people died from disease anyway, which penicillin could have fixed, and we have a different perception of it. If you hadn't have had it in World War Two, then we would have a much gloomier picture about casualties and the, and the consequences of World War Two. That could have changed even people's thinking about it. But go back to uh, 1982, the Falklands War, uh, Surgeon Commander Rick Jolly, people came into his centre and he didn't lose them. And if they were Argentinian or they were British, it didn't matter. And we've advanced since then enormously. Dr Walker, how do you ensure that the rate of the medical advances during combat operations is maintained in the UK once they're over? You know, Kate, this is one of my main bugbears. It's very important because there's a history of uh, military medicine. There's great peaks, but also abysmal troughs that we have to relearn the lessons. But this time, I think the research that we've integrated in universities and institutions throughout UK and with national and international partners uh, is going to help us keep moving forwards. I think also our staff are working in the major newly designated trauma centres in UK in many cases, and that will keep us in line with the NHS. We're leading them just now, but maybe in the future they will teach us more. Of course, a consequence of all of this is that more people will survive, sometimes needing a lot of support and aftercare for their disabilities. For I'm thinking of the numbers of amputees, for example. Has the aftercare kept up with the progress made on life-saving? You know, there's been great advances in rehabilitation and prosthetics as well. The prosthetic that you get today is like your computer. It's out of date by the time you actually fit it because the advances moved on that quickly. Um, 
it's it's difficult keeping up with it. It's also expensive, but we're doing that all the time. Uh, and some of the new prosthetic um, uh, fittings that we've got are just unbelievable. Um, but also the rehabilitative programs that people are going through and, and the long-term care we're um, integrating with the NHS for the veterans as well is very important. All right, Surgeon Commodore Alistair Walker, thank you very much for your time today. Now, just before we go, in the week that Falkland Islanders voted a resounding yes to remaining British, the Cardinals at the Vatican elected a new Argentinian Pope who reportedly believes the Falklands belong to Argentina and they were usurped by the British. Christopher, do Pope Francis's political views matter? They do matter. Um, I, mean, I tell you who they matter to. They matter to people like the Americans. Uh, in 2016, when there's an American general election, uh, one of the deciding factors will be the Hispanic vote. Forty percent of Catholics are in Hispanic, i.e. Latin America uh, of the Americas. People like, uh, I don't know, Hillary Clinton, who might be standing, are going to be saying to themselves, we've got to harness that Latin American Hispanic vote. Uh, what the Pope says will not decide American policy, British policy, or anybody else's policy. What they don't want the Pope to do is to talk against what they're thinking and what they're planning. So his, his, his power, and don't forget he is the Pope of a sixth of the world, his power is in what he doesn't say rather than what he does say. Well, that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to our defence analyst, to you, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS SitRed. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening and goodbye. Quinn.